So you blew me off for a bottle of tequila. Tequila's no good for you. Doesn't call, doesn't write. It's not nearly as much fun to wake up to. Hi, welcome to Scalpels and Tequila. I'm Ayla. I'm Tamsin, and today we are discussing Season 1, Episode 5, Shake Your Groove Shake Thing. Shake Your Groove Thing, yeah, yeah. So a quick little synopsis is that Izzy is planning a party for her boyfriend's visit while she's also supervising the daily discharges. Meredith holds her first heart while she assists Dr. Burke and deals with the weight of being responsible for her mother's estate. Bailey, George and Weber extract a surgical towel from a patient. Alex and Derek have a difference of opinion when treating a patient with chronic pain and a chronic drug habit. What is this episode about, Ayla? So in Meredith's intro spiel, she talks all about the difference in being the responsibility of being a child and the responsibility of being an adult, which we're all deeply feeling in our bones. Uh, she wakes up in the shower and is like, being, being an adult is overrated. Adulthood is responsibility. And she's absolutely not wrong. Yeah, that's totally what this episode is about. It's every storyline comes back to responsibility as such an overarching theme. Yeah. I mean, we open this episode with Meredith finding out that her mother needs to sign over her estate, her life, her everything into Meredith's name. And she's at the nursing home with one of the carers. And I think that's a lot for Meredith to take in and even comprehend. That's a huge level of responsibility. But to do this, Meredith's mother has to be lucid. So they have to figure out a time when Meredith can come in while her mother's lucid so her mother can actually sign over this. And what a terrifying position to be in. Well, the thing that makes me the most uncomfortable is she says to the woman, I've been awake for 45 hours and I'm about to go into surgery. Mm -hmm. Just that is just the most irresponsible thing I can imagine. And it's funny because this show, you know, that's how we're introduced to all the characters in this show and introduced to hospital life is that they work these crazy hours and they're always tired. And now coming out of COVID, I mean, especially with all hospital staff and all carer staff and nurses, like everyone has been extremely overworked. I think we're actually seeing such a shift in so many industries now that are realizing that this go, 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 constant work, no life balance. Grind or die culture. Totally is really affecting people's health, people's mental health, people's well-being. And I think we did speak about this and we probably have been speaking about this a lot recently. Every episode. <laughs> I think. Yeah. Yeah. We're heading into this thing that is being coined the great resignation. And people are just leaving their jobs because they can't handle this workload anymore. So it's going to be really interesting seeing what shifts and what changes. So as we've kind of been saying, Grey's Anatomy is really relevant and we've even gone back to season one and it seems just as relevant as it did. Pulling off all the heartstrings. Um, funny, <laughs> funny I mentioned heartstrings. I'm just full of the puns today. Um, <laughs> Meredith's surgery is assisting Burke in a cabbage procedure for um, our patient, Mrs. Patterson, uh, and she's doing the cabbage procedure, which just rings so many bells. I'm pretty sure that's mentioned later, but her job is to hold the heart. And she nods off in the, the middle of this procedure. And like, quite rightly, you've been up for 45 hours. And, um, yeah, she realizes when she stepped away that she's popped a glove. I really like that phrase, popped a glove. I also just want to say that Ellen Pompeo obviously in real life has a cold or something because her voice is husky. Husky. But it works so well for this episode. 
yeah, she's been awake for 45, 48 hours. Like, I think. But also, like, the stress of her mum, there's so much on her shoulders at the moment. It just makes sense that she'd be a bit run down. Um, and then we find out that Izzy is having a party. Oh, because her boyfriend's coming back into town, her, her hockey-playing Ken doll boyfriend. Which we haven't heard of before. So this is the first mention of Izzy having a boyfriend. Mm-hmm. She gets a little bit of shit about it from Christina. And I know you were saying in the first episode we filmed that we never see them eat, but there's lots of eating in this episode. There's lots of snacks in this episode. When they're having this chat, Christina is eating an apple and George is eating some sort of yogurt. So you wanted some Grey's Anatomy cooking challenges. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Mm, Your play. (laughs) (laughs) So is he supposed to be planning this like get together? And I I think the assumption was that it was going to be Meredith, Christina, George, like their intimate friend group meeting the, the Ken doll. It's not. Izzy has quickly invited everyone in the hospital and it goes I, my firm belief, every episode, Izzy has gone on to prove that she is a terrible housemate. Absolutely terrible housemate. Yeah, this is horrific housemate behavior. This has happened to me when I've had housemates have parties that, not that I wasn't aware about, but definitely got bigger than what I was aware. And it's the worst. Oh, it was called a gathering because that's what we used to call them. There was different levels it was like a few people around. There was a gathering, a shindig, and a party. It was when 150 people came to your house and you filled your entire fridge with 400 jelly shots. <gasps> Not that I'd know. <laughs> and George is constantly at, like on her being like, as long as you tell Meredith, as long as you tell Meredith, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. It's funny that Christina says, I thought only the jocks were coming. Mm-hmm. And then she explains it's surgery, trauma, and plastics are the jocks of the hospital. Yeah, she's talking about, um, Meredith was talking about being a kid. It was all easy. There was no responsibilities. There was there was no big drama. And I just thought it was really funny that uh, Christina sort of uses a very high school analogy. Also particularly funny because anyone who was in medicine was absolutely not one of the cool kids in high school. It's like all of those um, high school tropes have followed into hospital, which is actually really interesting talking about being a kid and being an adult. Mm -hmm. It is funny how sayings about high school never ends. Like, you know, even when you start a new job, there's still that feeling that there's the popular group and the nerdy group and it still feels like that. Oh, the clicks and everything. Yeah. Yeah, clicks. George is nagging at Izzy constantly to tell Meredith, Uh, but he actually has a patient as well. He has Mrs. Drake. And Mrs. Drake is lovely. I've thoroughly enjoyed Mrs. Drake in everything I've ever seen her in. Are you a West Wing fan? Yes. Oh, great. Because seeing Mrs. Landingham always makes me very happy. Yeah. I love that woman so much. Um, I'm re-watching the West Wing for like the millionth time at the moment. And only just a, like a couple of days ago, I got up to Mrs. Like I've just started again. And Mrs. Landingham has just died. So like seeing her... Just recently again was really nice. I'm like, you're still here. Oh, hi. <laughs> what a sweetheart. So she has this really terrible story where she's, and I'm, I'm sure this has happened to many people over the years, and it's especially common in women and uh, people of color where there will be complaints about a health issue for many, many years, and it will go ignored or be diminished uh, or just be, you know, all in your head. So she'd been complaining for the last five or so years about a pain in her chest. And this was after having had a uh, an, a surgery on her lungs uh, from being a smoker. 
Uh, and one of the doctors tells her to not um, give her any grief about being a smoker because from the look of her lungs, she was still smoking. George finds out that she, she quit smoking cold turkey the second she had her procedure. It's actually interesting when they're looking at the x-rays of her lungs. George makes this comment and he says, do you think if they put a picture of this on cigarettes that people would stop smoking? The answer is no. And it's really funny because we're in Australia (laughs) and there is pictures like this on packets of cigarettes here. It's like illegal to not have photos of health complications from smoking on cigarette packets. So I think being here, like we're very used to seeing this imagery but I, I don't think that's a thing in the States. I still don't think it's a thing now, even though this was years and years ago. I'll put some pictures up uh, for, of the Australian ones on our Instagram so you can all see. No, that's so mean. If people haven't seen them, it's so awful. I personally, my favourite one of all time are the New Zealand ones. Well, the ones in New Zealand are particularly hilarious. There's one and it's a cigarette where it's burnt all the way down to ash, but it's kind of like limp and leaning forwards and it's just... Smoking cigarettes can lead to impotency. Oh, that's good. That's a funny one. That's not like the pictures of the the dead guy and the black hearts and the black lungs. And, oh, I don't even notice it anymore. It was more the green packages that I didn't. Uh, who cares? We're talking about smoking. See how I didn't say any who? Did you see it? Yeah. Yeah, but you thought about it and then you just said it. Fuck. So we also meet Alex's patient. Alex's patient is a drug addict and he's come in for pain relief. And this is a really interesting conversation we get from Derek and from Alex because Alex just wants to discharge him and send him to some sort of facility where he can get help for drug addiction. But Derek wants to treat his pain. You still have to treat his pain as if it's real because we find out later that the patient, Jerry, actually had three spinal fusions and someone who has very bad spinal problems. Like, I don't doubt that. Jerry's pain is incredibly real and there's there's a huge argument about whether or not opiates should be prescribed for people with serious pain because this is a repercussion. This man, Jerry, probably only has a drug addiction because there was a doctor out there who kept prescribing him opiates and barbiturates for a really, really long time rather than going through physiotherapy and looking at alternative methods, which is why... Like medicinal marijuana is such a big deal. You can just have a shitload of CBD and be fine. When I was in Europe a couple of years ago, I just I, I bought as much CBD as I could and I didn't have back pain. I came back to Australia and had to be on opiates again and it sucks. Luckily, no addiction here. Prefer to have bowel movements than have opiates. It is a really interesting conversation and it goes back to this theme of responsibility. So like, Alex believes that his responsibility as a doctor is to get this patient more like mental holistic treatment, to put them in a facility to stop their reliance on drugs for pain relief, whereas Derek believes it's the hospital's responsibility to just give him the pain relief. So it is, it's a really interesting, I, I don't know the answer. It's probably somewhere between the two, honestly, but it is a really interesting conversation that they have. Well, I don't think I don't think Derek's response is give him drugs and send him on his way. <clears throat> Derek's response is the person is in pain. It is our job as doctors to take that pain away. And I don't know if anyone listening has been in that kind of pain, but 
the ability to think rationally is not there. So even if Alex did turn around to him and say, no, I'm not giving you anything. I'm going to send you to psych. I'm going to send you somewhere else. It's it's not going to get through. It's not going to make any sense because that not only is he going through the, the actual physical pain of his back, he's also going through withdrawals, which from what I hear and what I've experienced having to come off at extended opiate use is wildly unpleasant. So Derek is right. They they do need to give him something in order to be able to talk to him about the issues that he's having and get to the mm. root of the problem. Yeah, so it's definitely somewhere in between both. It's not, It's like both are really important. And we do find out that the reason Alex has such a strong personal connection to this is because his dad was a junkie, which is the language he uses. And so it is – this is the first time we find out really anything about Alex – so we get that information and we understand that, yeah, from Alex's point of view, what he thinks this guy needs because what Alex's dad needed was rehab. So it's understandably a really personal storyline and it is really nice to get to learn about Alex a little bit. I think we're slowly seeing good flickers of good in Alex's character. Just sprinkles. And then Izzy's patient. Is the next one. Izzy's on discharge today. So her job is to go around discharging all the patients. And I think everyone's going to quickly find out that I'm a broken, broken human. Um, if you're in hospital and you've had surgery, they won't discharge you until after you have, um, you go and poop. You need to poop. And her patient, who is sternum, uh, had a bowel obstruction. So she's talking to him. She's like, my least favorite thing to ask patients, have you pooped yet? <laughs> <laughs> And then we find out that he knows how to kind of, well, he's trying to trick Izzy into thinking that he's fine and he can be discharged because he went to med school. And they have a really interesting chat where he explains he gave up medicine because he was looking down the barrel of divorce and he realized that your first responsibility being a surgeon was always going to be your patient and that there is no work-life balance. And this is kind of, I think, this ties in with Izzy's storyline because this is where we find out she has a boyfriend and she's planning this party and she wants him to meet her friends. And she says that she doesn't see it that way and she believes that she can have both. And this really feels like a bit of like an act one gun again because I, as soon as you make have this conversation and make a big statement like that, it's like, well, this is about to come tumbling down. Well, it's also talking about the, the different responsibilities you have in your life. Yes. You have a responsibility to your work, to your social life, to your romantic life, to your sleep schedule. And he chose to not necessarily sacrifice his work responsibilities, but change them so he could put more of himself into his other lifestyle mm, Yeah, he just shuffled his priorities, I guess, because he knew that for him – having the hospital as his number one priority and his main responsibility wasn't going to work for his life, which is totally fine. So this kind of sets off a running theme with Izzy's character because she is she does put so much of her heart into her patients and into her work, but she is always the one that wants a family and wants an outside and wants a home life and wants an outside the hospital well, life. She planned the party. She planned the party. So I think... This idea of trying to have it all and wanting it all is a running theme for Izzy's character, which has kind of started with this conversation and we see throughout the rest of her time in the show. Comparatively to a character like Christina, who just wants work and wants Harper ovaries and wants to be the best surgeon, which, again, is totally fine. It's just picking your priorities and trying to make it work. 
There's one sort of scene in Grey's Anatomy that really, like, sticks with me forever, and it's the scene where um, Christina – I think it was, like, the first time we saw Christina's house or something, and she says, oh, I don't do washing. I just buy new underwear. <laughs> like, she has so little time for all of her other responsibilities mm-hmm. that it's like, you know what, it's just easier to get underwear on the internet and deliver to my house and that'll do. Can you imagine wearing new underwear every day? That's. I feel like underwear needs a good couple of wears to be properly, like, worn in. A new pair of jeans, never good the first wear. Yeah, that's so true. But I guess... Mm, doesn't care. This conversation, I think, as well, relates back to the start of the episode and responsibility on a whole. But when we we're talking about this phase that society is going through, not phase, this new understanding society is going through after COVID of trying to figure out a better work-life balance and this grind or die culture and what we're leading, you know, what we're moving into now, because people are really discovering that they need better work-life balance. The eight hours of rest a day is one, a lie, and two, just not enough. I read a really interesting article um, I read an interesting article. I watched a TikTok. <laughs> and then there was an article written about the TikTok. Uh, and it was this woman actually breaking down the eight-hour work week and what it was. Eight-hour work week? Oh, sorry, the eight-hour work day. Uh, eight hours sleep, work, and uh, leisure time, which which did work back in the day. It's why minimum wage existed. Minimum wage was the minimum amount of money that one person in a household, the the man, could earn to support a family and buy a house. Can I ask questions on that? When you say, so eight hours sleep, eight hours work, where's the eight hours of leisure? What time are they saying? So this is how it's supposed to work, right? So say you start work at nine, you would wake up at seven and technically between seven and nine are two hours of leisure. Mm Hmm leisure one hour of that is going to work the other hour is getting dressed having a shower and maybe getting a coffee on the way so the eight hour work day scenario happened over a hundred years ago when people did genuinely kind of live on their work site that's that's how it it went and there was someone at home who worked a 40 to 50 hour week maintaining the home Mm, Now we have the problem where, you know, you, it's, it it doesn't tend to be eight hours work anyway, because you've got an hour break in the middle. So they do still want your hours work out of you. So it's actually nine hours a day. Most people tend to have a travel of an hour either side. So that's an 11 hour day. Then you have to consider the fact that you have to get ready for work. And generally for women, that amount of time is significantly longer because there's expected standards of dress and appearance that you have to adhere to. Um, On top of that, on the way back from work, you've got your travel again. So your work day is actually more like 12 hours, which means your leisure time is completely cut short, uh, which is why a lot of people are talking about the mass resignation and the need to change these things and why a lot of Scandinavian countries have moved to the the four-day work week. They're not finding any less productivity. Um, People are actually getting stuff done because people are genuinely happier and they have more time to do everything else because it isn't the case where one person – one person's full-time job is maintaining a house, which is why so many of us, and they, they all just say that it's a millennial's complaint, but we're kind of the first generation that doesn't really have stay-at-home 
jobs. And also, I think, you know, we're getting married later. So we are single a lot longer. We live with housemates. So we don't have an extra person to help with that sort of stuff either. And we're not, yeah, we, the idea of being a stay home carer or a stay home person who tends to the house is really non-existent. I'm sure it, I'm sure it happens every now and like occasionally, but it's pretty rare. So we're doing all of that stuff. Well, a lot of that comes, a lot of that comes down to the fact that the minimum wage is no longer enough to support a household and buy a house. That's a whole other debate. Why do we always end up getting so angry by the middle of these episodes? This is a really fun episode. And so far we're talking about the deliberations of everyone quitting their job and inequity. Because this show is so relevant and has such social commentary that was so ahead of its time that it makes even season one relevant to our life now, even though this was 20 years later. Years ago. Yeah. So George is actually getting to work with the chief and Dr. Bailey on this episode. Um, They're doing a keyhole surgery. Uh, It's quite interesting to see Dr. Dr. Weber. I think this is one of the first times we've ever seen him really in surgery with the microscopes on sticks and they see something quite suspicious and George picks up that it's a towel. So they decide to cut her open and lo and behold, out comes this terrifying, wet, black, gelatinous, Towel. I think that's all the adjectives I, I know how to say. It is really terrifying and it is Halloween tomorrow. So that's my Halloween outfit. Towel that's been in a body cavity for five years. <laughs> You're just going to suck it out your belly button. <laughs> uh, so I don't know why Christine is there, but she is sent to find out and go through old surgical records to find out who and where the towel came from. Yes. George is sent to console the patient. And we also see Burke giving a little coffee. It's not little, it's actually huge. A huge coffee to Christina. What is with the size of American coffees, by the way? I can't say too much. Actually, mine was that size today. It was great. So this is the first time we see this happen, where someone gives someone else a coffee in the world of Grey's Anatomy, but we quickly learn that that means... I want to sleep with you. I'm going to touch your business. Here's some energy for later. <laughs> well, because they've had a really funny, like, mm-hmm. tete all all season with it's these little stolen glances. and Yeah, so there's definitely been some chemistry there. Because what does he say? He, he gives her the coffee and she kind of looks at it as if it's poisoned and looks at him and looks at the coffee and is like, it's just a coffee. She's like, it's not just a coffee you want in my pants. Yeah, she knows. You want to give me some of the real mocha, Chino? <laughs> you blushing? Yeah, because I it's a good scene. <laughs> but she takes it and walks away. Yeah, right after Christina's been giving Meredith shit for sleeping with Derek. So much shit for sleeping with Derek. So then Christina and George are investigating the last time this patient had come I want to call her Mrs. Landingham, but that's not her Mrs. name. Mrs. Drake. Mrs. Drake has come to hospital because that would have been the time that the towel had gotten stuck, lost, lost, and made its way into her. I'm just so uncomfortable. And Christina is the one who finds out that it was Burke surgery. He was a fellow. She hands off the information to Bailey, who tells her to keep quiet about it, which is very, like, I understand why? No, I understand why. You can't have an intern kind of running around being like, Dr. Burke left a towel in someone. There's there's a 
proper way to kind of have that conversation because it's a pretty big deal. Also, I just want to do a little shout out. We also see Izzy's on the phone ordering alcohol for a party and Alex comes across, basically says, get the micro brews from the local brewery. She's ordering 14 slabs of beer. That is... I just wanted to talk about how much alcohol. But also shout out to local breweries. You don't sit... Um, and like, what, 20 years ago? Well, because he's like, yeah, tell them to get the micro brews. So is, Alex keeps asking about the party and everyone keeps ignoring him. Like he he's not existing, but he's, he's being helpful. Like we're seeing him being kind of kind and not facetious. But 14 cases of beer from independent microbreweries like a standard slab of beer here in this oh, i suppose alcohol is cheaper there but here that is a crazy amount of money if you were buying the cheapest shittiest local beer you would be up for 50 bucks a slab and if you're buying micro brews it's more like 70 to 90 dollars a case which means that this is like two thousand dollars worth of beer that she's just ordering to be delivered to her house is that a thing people used to do it seems wild because i feel like people also bring alcohol to parties but yeah well on the table as well there's there's this array of spirits also i, I kind of really love that bailey is a bourbon girl uh, that's in my notes too she's like where's the bourbon it's a good it's a good addition to the Bailey character. I like it. But it seems super weird and we'll go into this more, but she comes to this party dressed like she's going to church or something. And then she just wants some bourbon in a plastic cup. It's very weird. Just a very big plastic cup. Anyway, I think you mean anywho. Ooh. Anyway, we have another scene with Derek not leaving Meredith alone, asking her to skip out on her own party and go out for dinner with him instead. And That's where, right after, Derek stares at her with puppy dog eyes as she gets into the elevator with George, who is completely none the wiser to what's going on with Meredith and Derek. But I think it is so obvious that something's going on by the way that they look at each other. And then Meredith confesses to George in the elevator that she might have, she popped a glove, may have nicked the heart. She gave the heart a little squeeze because she fell asleep because she's exhausted and may have popped a glove. And she's asking for George's advice on whether or not she should tell Burke that this happened. And he basically says, is the patient fine? Because if the patient's fine, then like the patient's fine, it's fine. Mm. And at that time, the patient is fine. A little while later, though, patient's fine and her husband's there. We meet him. He's lovely. Uh, but she just starts bleeding, non-specifically bleeding. I assume it's through the wound, but bleeding. Um, So Meredith quite rightly has a proper panic attack. It's a very frantic scene. There's lots of the beep, 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 beep. And Burke's being called in and checks all the stats and everything was fine. Everything was fine. And she just spits out that she pops a glove. And then, yes, Meredith blurts out that she popped a glove, that she might have nicked the heart. And... Unfortunately for Meredith, the patient's husband is right there and can hear her, but she's feeling so guilty and overtired. It just, it just blurts out. And Burke is furious. That man has got fury eyes down pat. So they get into the surgery and he shows Gray that there's a tear in ventricular wall is weak and it ruptured, which basically means that it, it could... It was not Meredith's fault and the heart is just thinner than it kind of should be. No. It's just very weak. And Burke does another really 
I think we discussed in the last couple of episodes that our interns seem to be putting being put in positions that are really outside of their pay grade. So Burke puts a lot of responsibility on Gray and sends her to go unsupervised to talk to the husband and see what uh, she can find out about his medical history. And he's outside on the phone to his lawyer, as, you know, Americans are wont to do. And basically, Gray's trying to talk to him and be like, hey, we need to find out what's going on because her ventricular wall is very, very thin. And he's like, she's in the best health of her life. She lost 100 pounds in the last year. That is very important information because rapid weight loss can come with its own issues. It is 45 kilos. Oh, it's nearly 50 kilos. That's that's not a small amount. That's it. That's a huge, that's like a whole teenager. Going from a 150 kilos to 100 kilos is quite dramatic. Well, that's a third of your body. Okay, so she lost a third of her body weight in a year. I believe it's quite dangerous to lose more than like 10% of your body weight in any sort of rapid succession. And I feel like that's kind of information that should have been brought up when she first came to hospital. Well, because he said that um, his wife had a cardiologist and I feel like a cardiologist should have like written down that we were trying to treat whatever heart issue she had with weight loss. Yeah. So she, um, Gray admits this in front of the husband and, and Weber accosts them in the, in the surgery saying that he's going to need to see her full chart and have a discussion with them tomorrow morning, the morning after the party, mind you. Yeah, so Meredith's already tired and now she has to go home to a raging house party she doesn't know about and have a very important kind of almost disciplinary hearing in the morning. Yep. Oh, and that is after heading back to the nursing home to sign off on her mum's condition. This girl's had a day. She's had the worst day. So she's been up for 45 hours, 48 hours, has to go to the the nursing home, holds her heart and breaks it. Mm. Worried about losing her job, has to go back to the nursing home to sign over all of her mum's estate only to find out that her mum is not in a lucid state at all. So, yeah, she gets there and she can't even sign the documents because her mum's, yeah, her mum's not lucid. And then Meredith actually gets really angry at the nursing staff at the care home. She says something like, why couldn't we have done this before? Or Why couldn't we have done this earlier? Why didn't you make her do this before? kind of throwing the responsibility on the nursing staff and not getting this done earlier, which is almost a reflection on what's just happened with her and Burke when Burke kind of got angry at her for not speaking up earlier about the heart. You had all the time to tell me about this before I closed. And she's kind of saying a similar thing to this nursing staff. So all of her issues and all of her responsibility. Well, she's also saying it to her mother's lawyer. And I feel like her mother's lawyer probably knows her mother better than she does at this point. Yeah, so the blame, she's just pushing the blame off her, pushing the responsibility onto someone else because I think she feels like the responsibility is too much. And she's also said that line to Derek, which we haven't mentioned. She said it a little while ago, but we were talking about before we started recording when she says, we're adults. When did that happen? And how, how do we make, make it, it stop? stop? God, I wish I knew the answer to that question. Yeah, I feel that right now. So hard. I think the perfect way to explain it is when you were a kid, you were so excited to become an adult because when you're an adult, you can eat ice cream and cake for breakfast and lunch and dinner every day and no one can tell you not to. But when you're an adult, 
you don't want to eat ice cream cake for breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day. And there it is. When you're a kid, you have this glorious idea. And you know what? There are times where I'm like, you know what? I want to I wanna buy an entire cake with my adult money and eat it. Do I? Absolutely not. Why? I don't fucking know. You just bought a whole cake yesterday. I was with you. <laughs> yeah, but it wasn't for me. I got none of the cake. I will happily spend my adult money buying frivolous, silly, childish things for other people, but I don't do it for myself. Mm. Why not? We're both having very stressful days. I say, everyone listening, I, Ayla, am giving you permission to just stop giving a shit for an hour. You get an hour. I understand that there's a dozen things you need to do today. I get it because this is one of the seven things that I need to do today. But just, just give yourself an hour. Go and buy some damn cake. And if you don't like sweets, that's cute. Go buy a wheel of brie. Go, just, just go buy something that is completely frivolous and sit down and munch it and be completely satisfied that you have given yourself permission to have that time and that little bit of childish happiness. That's really nice. I don't suggest buying a liter of tequila and drinking it though, because we that 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 ends up with making out with strange boys in cars. That's a fun thing to do though, too, that you're allowed to do when you're an adult. So Meredith gets home and there is a raging party at her house. She's the worst housemate. I furious. Absolutely furious. And because she walks in the door and some random basically hands her I don't know what it is. It's either a lampshade or a really weird bowl. It's a really tacky lamp. And George is really nice. George offers, he's like, Izzy didn't tell you? I'll kick them out. I'll kick everybody out. But then in true BFF fashion, we see Christina dancing on a table. (laughs) Maybe you made it. Wasted. Bottle of tequila in hand. And Meredith's just like, fuck it. Jumps onto the table with Christina. Has one sip of tequila and then is wasted somehow. And it is just a snapshot of the early thousand atrocities. So Christina's wearing a maroon brown cap sleeved V neck shirt. It's like one, it's one shoulder. It's just not good. And just very low pants. Her top is kind of, it's one shoulder. She's got a big pendant necklace on. It's like a brown color. And it's kind of ruched at the bottom so that when she sticks her arms up, the whole thing comes up and you see her whole belly, which is, which is fine. And her pants are very low. And then so we see Bailey at the party, which we mentioned before, but I just want to bring it up again. Bailey has come to the party. Her hair is teased and quaffed to the heavens. Oh, it is higher the hair, the closer to Jesus, people. Mm, here for it. She's... <laughs> She's wearing dangly earrings and a very pendanty necklace and a purple wrap top. And she just looks so old. Why is she dressed so old? She's not supposed what to be this old. What is that material called? What's that material like called? Rayon or something? Or like. It's that it's, it's the, you see it in, um, in Spotlight or haberdashery stores. And it's kind of like if you turn it, it'll go from pink to sort of a purpley and it's definitely made out of Mm. plastic. But that's what's sort of like draped over one shoulder. 
So she's dressed like older auntie going to church on a Sunday, but then she's like, where's your bourbon at? And just pours herself a big plastic cup of bourbon. Christina's nagging her to find out what happened with Burke because we see this very sus scene in the hospital where Christina's peering through the windows and sees uh, Bailey and Burke having a chat and Bailey's holding the case file that proves that Burke was the surgeon that, that left the towel in. And it's this really awkward thing where Bailey goes to walk away with the file and Burke asks for it and she unwillingly hands it over. So we get the impression that Burke's not going to say anything Mm. because we dislike Burke. Mm. He's an asshole. And, yeah, so Christina's asking her at the party, like, what's happening, what's happening, what's happening? And Bailey's like, we are not going to talk about this or are you too drunk to realise? And Christina and her pendant get very scared and (laughs) hand her the bourbon. But we finally meet Izzy's boyfriend, and he is just the most generic early thousands hot boy that ever exists. I'm pretty sure there was a puka shell necklace involved. (laughs) It was definitely the Liberty Spike hair. He just looks like he's walked straight off a high school teenage movie. Abercrombie and Fitch ad. Mm Mm-hmm. He was that guy. He's even almost wearing something that resembles that kind of varsity jacket vibe. Oh, you're so right. Yeah. And the the obscenely baggy jeans. Oh, how did we think that was good? Yeah, it's a lot. But he walks in on Christina Meredith and a shirtless George, who are very drunk on the, on the floor. <laughs> Playing strip poker. And they tell him that Izzy's not there. And so he goes off to find her at the hospital. Alex and Derek's patient has finally received his pain relief and Derek comes in and does the very abrupt Derek thing, same sort of thing that he did with our penisless man, where he comes charging in and is very straightforward to the point and you can see where his loyalties do lie and basically tells the guy, you're being discharged now, you were in pain, you're not in pain anymore, Alex here is going to tell you about some fantastic treatment options. Um, So it's Izzy's responsibility to go and discharge him And the patient is resisting discharge in a very aggressive way. Yeah, there's a bit of a tussle in the corridor. He doesn't want to go. Alex is kind of manhandling him, but he's manhandling Alex. There's some orderlies helping as well. Yeah, it gets pretty rough and the patient is thrown to the ground. Mm -hmm. He slips and falls as he's trying to run away and ends up getting a subdural bleed. Um, So Izzy and Alex are given the option to go to their party or to stay and do brain surgery. So obviously, where do your responsibilities lie? With the patient. And this is Izzy's big moment to really decide what her priorities are. Is it her friends? Is it her social life? Is it her boyfriend? Or is it work? And she chooses work. Mm Mm-hmm. Over a It's also a huge moment for Alex during the surgery. He he makes a comment that, that takes Derek aback, saying maybe this will get him out of the hole. And no one really understands what that means. And, and Alex, basically, we find out a bit more about him and his attitude. And he says that his father was a musician who was into smack. I believe he was a smacky musician. Um and it didn't make him a very good father, and that's kind of all he says about it. But I don't understand how he thinks that having a brain surgery, which will then require you to be on more painkillers and more drugs for the rest of your life, will get you out of that hole. I'm not sure either. I think it's hopeful, wishful thinking that potentially this will wake him up to the dangers of it. But, yeah, I I don't know. 
it's just potentially the writing just letting us in a little bit more on Alex and how Alex really strongly believes in rehab. Derek asked them both to stay and keep an eye on the patient. And um, Alex takes a knee and tells uh, Izzy to go home and see her boyfriend and that he'll look after it. And it's a, it's a really nice moment between the two of them. It is. This is another little spark of goodness we see from Alex. It's not all the time, but I mean, after last episode where he was absolutely abhorrent, it's really nice to see this little side. To Izzy specifically. Yeah, I'm surprised she was talking to him at all. Mm -hmm. Maybe this was Alex's apology. Yeah, that's a nice way to look at it. An actual apology would probably be worth more, but like... An apology, nonetheless. Um, and then Izzy gets uh, gets dumped by the stupid dumb boy. Yeah, so her partner, has her boyfriend, has come to visit her at the hospital. And as, as she is kind of leaving the hospital to go to the party, they run into each other. I guess they just have this conversation about the work-life balance, about where her, her priorities lie, and how he doesn't really understand this new world that she's in and how important her work is. And how important the people are to her as well, because she says, I just want you to come and meet some of my friends and the people I work with. And he says, I, d- I don't want to have anything to do with them. It's like, you didn't mind meeting the people I worked with when they were models. So you know exactly who this guy is. Yeah, exactly. Big red flag. She's better without him. Bye-bye. Because at the end of the day, all of the surgeons are workaholics with God complexes. <laughs> Classic Christina line on the gurney again. Then the next scene is Meredith drunk, dancing outside her house by herself in her own little world. And we get the little clip of dialogue that we use in the start of our podcast. You blew me up for a bottle of tequila. It's it's such a weird scene. Like dancing around in your front stoop by yourself. She's just having a moment. She's having a minute. And then she says one of the grossest things I think Meredith's ever said, where she's like, take me for a ride, Derek. Oh. I hate it. I'm sorry. I, I find it so cringy. It's very uh, Titanic when Rose is like, I want to see the stars. Take me to the moon. Oh, yeah, it's it's that. <laughs> yeah, it's gross. It's that. Um, and then they have sex in yeah, the car. Well, she's she's topless in the car. I don't know if they have sex. I don't really know if it's possible. To I have think sex that's what it's. I think that's what it's implied. But I don't know how that is supposed to be more secretive, having sex in a vehicle with windows. That, like, it makes sense for Derek to be at the party. There are so many people from the hospital at the party. Mm -hmm. So if Meredith is like, cool, if you head down the corridor, the last bedroom on the left is mine, I'll meet you there in, like, 15 minutes. So much more discreet. They can lock the door. But they're just having sex in a car out the front. But anyway... It gives us this really great scene where Bailey sees them. Spin Bailey. She is not happy about it. She says nothing, though. She's just like, I need you to move your car so I can drive home. She calls it a tail wagon. Tail wagon. (laughs) (laughs) I enjoy. Oh, yeah. By the time Izzy gets home, it is what? The the sun's up. Meredith's sleeping on the the living room floor and George is bringing in coffee and Izzy just walks into this apocalypse of a house and I just, I'm so mad at Izzy. This was her party. I would have been like, that's fine. You can be as sorry as you want, but you're doing the cleaning. Mm Mm-hmm. 
I would say that is fair. That is absolutely 100% fair. But it's actually Izzy who figures out that Meredith is not to blame for uh, her patient's heart rupture. So it's good. So Meredith hears this from Izzy and then is able to go into the hospital with a really clear defense and explanation of what happened to this patient that doesn't involve her clipping the heart. And she has this disciplinary hearing and Christina, Izzy and George are kind of watching from the corridor. And Christina says, basically makes a bet. She's like, I bet you that Meredith gets kicked out on her ass and Burke walks away clean, which is so telling of society and culture and the way men and men's jobs are seen as so much more important. Mm hmm than women um and this is the first time we actually see burke not being a dickhead so the the lawyer's in there and she's having a go at meredith for not speaking up sooner and for doing it in front of the patient's husband and burke turns around and basically says five years ago i closed up after a surgery and I had a niggling feeling that there was something wrong or something that I'd missed and I didn't say anything to anyone. I didn't speak up to anyone for fear of repercussion. Meredith spoke up and the the lawyer lady gets very angry and he's like, no, everyone, the reason why people don't speak up is because they are scared to speak up about things without the fear of retribution. And that is so on the money. Yeah. Yeah. So Meredith gets a one month probation, which honestly she should have had at least three episodes ago. <laughs> Burke says his piece, but uh, Christina and Bailey have a funny chat after that, where Bailey says she was always going to tell he was always going to tell the chief, but remember, information is power. So I think he was just holding it for the right time to say it, and I think I don't know if I was the chief, I probably wouldn't want my surgeon who is currently in the middle of this lawsuit to admit in front of the lawyers to being responsible for another potential lawsuit. Yeah. It is a, in a re in the real world, it's a, it's a weird choice, but the way that it's written into this episode is that he's doing this to help Meredith, which is Great. This is the first time we see Burke, as you kind of said, not being a dick, being a good guy. And I guess with him as a character, you see him understanding what happened to Meredith because uh, he has just... Found out he did the same thing. Yeah, found out he did the same thing, that he was just yelling at Meredith. I think it's really funny that he has a chance to speak up without fear of retribution, considering that any time in the last five episodes that any of our interns has spoken up to Burke, there has been nothing but fire and brimstone re- retribution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We kind of see, so after this, we do get a little bit of a, it's almost a montage sequence where you just see character dynamics shift. So it's a little montage of characters in the show having really brief moments where we can kind of see their relationship between them has changed a little bit. There's a really quick moment of Bailey giving Derek oh, a look of such disdain on the stairs and Derek is forced to walk around her which I think is such a power move she yeah. does not move out of the way for her superior he's got to get around her information is power and she now holds responsibility 
of yep. his good standing. Because she knows that he's sleeping with an intern. Then you also see Alex and Izzy sharing a little moment in a corridor, like a little cute little moment, you know, oh, the life of a surgeon, because Alex says something like, did you make it to the party? It's like, well, not really. Life of a surgeon, eh? Uh, 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 and they share a little moment. And we love it. And it's it. really nice. Yep. And we see that their relationship has shifted because they have this understanding. We see Meredith signing the paperwork over and all of her mother's rights get signed to her. That goes back to the responsibility. Actually, all of these little clips are about responsibility because Bailey's kind of giving this look at Derek. It's like, you are being irresponsible. Well, Derek was being irresponsible. Yeah. Chasing an intern. Alex and Izzy are both on the same page about their responsibility as life of a surgeon now, that their patients are number one. And then Meredith getting the responsibility of her mother, all her mother's medical decisions. And then the biggest shift of all. And then it's, 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 it's been a long day and uh, our surgeons are, are very tired and, and they decide to take a n- nap in the on-call room. Burke's getting changed in the on-call room. He takes off his shirt. His shoes come off. The door opens and it's Christina. And she is... Doe-eyed. <laughs> I can't even describe... It's a great scene. It's brilliant. She walks in almost starstruck. And she thinks about it for a second. The eye contact these two have is is intense. There is a lot in that stare. And you get a good three seconds where she's deciding whether or not to lock the door because a locked door. Well, does she lock the door, Tamsin? There's a, it goes coffee, locked door, and then sex. Oh, he said sex. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> Thank you. I was thinking about it for a while. <laughs> um, and then Burke just grabs her. Just pounce. It's very good. It's very hot. Yep. And that is the start of the new relationship between Christina and Burke. Christina and Burke. After Christina, we have to kind of say, has given Meredith a lot of shit for sleeping with Derek. I think that this episode really shocked me when I was a lot younger because it was one of the the first times that I had ever seen on TV shows a mixed race couple with no mention of it being a mixed race couple. Cause I know the first time it ever happened in film was, uh, Kira Knightley's relationship in love. Actually, that was the first the re- first time you saw it. No, that was, I, I, I read something about this and it was the first time that there had ever been a film with a mixed race couple where that had never been mentioned in the film at all. Yeah. Like the storyline wasn't about race. Yeah, there was no mention of the duality of of their characters and their upbringing and stuff. It was just, they're a couple. And this, I think, was one of the first times I ever saw it in TV. I wouldn't be surprised because that is such a Shonda Rhimes thing and it's such a Grey's Anatomy thing because they do that again, this show, I think we have said before, but the relationship between Callie and Arizona is one of the first lesbian relationships on primetime TV that their characters aren't... Their storylines aren't about the fact that they're lesbians. And then we also have their wedding on TV as well. And it's not, you know, it's not always brought up. Like in Friends has a lesbian wedding, but the whole... It's a joke. Their whole characters and their whole storyline is that, yeah, it's a bit of a joke. And it's constantly referred to as the lesbian wedding. We're going to a lesbian wedding and the whole storyline. That's what it's about. It's not about two characters, two people, two humans falling in love. 
Well, it's in Friends. It's also um, that Ross's wife was stolen from him and he hates his wife's new partner. Yeah, that's kind of the joke. The whole joke is that he mm-hmm. married a lesbian. That's jo- This is coming from a Friends fan, by the way. I understand all the problems with Friends and I completely agree with why it does not same. It, it's very problematic. I'm a, hu- a huge same. Friends fan growing up. But yeah, so season one, very hot and heavy. Very, very good. I'm interested to see what's going to happen with George's dynamics. We didn't get a lot of George in this episode apart from him being mousy again. I kind of forgot re-watching it how little of Weber we get. Like, because the Weber character becomes so integral and he's such a huge character and we know all about his, we met his wife, we know his second wife really well, we know everything about Ellis, we know so much about him outside of the hospital and his relationships with everyone in the hospital become so integral, but we really haven't gotten much of him yet and I kind of forgot that he's not really a lead yet. He kind of feels a bit like a supporting character. He hasn't said anything that interesting. We just assume that he has the respect because he's the chief. We don't really know that much about Bailey either. She comes in with quippy comments here and there and she is the she dresses like a grandma at an auntie at church. Yeah. And she likes bourbon. Yeah. Alright. Well, can't wait to delve into those characters more. I can't wait until they really become leads in their own right. Lots to look forward to. So we have mentioned that we are doing a little bit of a hiatus from season 18 because they are not giving us any new episodes for a little while, but there is some other things going on that we will do an episode about probably next week. So we've got Ellen Pompeo's podcast. She has just done an episode with Eric Dane, who plays my man of the show, Mark Sloan. Um, So I'm excited. And then also we both have the Grey's Anatomy How to Save a Life book ordered but it just hasn't come yet the post is very bad at the moment and i'm waiting with bated breath thank you so much for listening we'd actually really love to hear your thoughts on this episode especially in relation to work-life balance i would love to hear if people are quitting their jobs having a big change of career i think it's a really interesting conversation at the moment and i would love to hear about your life yeah Let us know. Are you one of those people that's doing all the side hustles that we're hearing about all the time? Because I'll let you know, I am quite intrigued. If you know how or what cryptocurrency is, let us know. Uh, But otherwise, we will see you next week. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye. I have a vagina. Sing it. I have a vagina.